come before your sheep, and please help me to shine your word to them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, I've been really excited about doing this sermon on Romans 4. As you know, we're doing a series on Romans, and it's it's really something that has been speaking to me. It's been something that has been part of my life through my recent studies. I've been driving everybody crazy about the Reformation. And it's, it's something that I think that you guys will be able to see how those two things are related in today's message. But the first thing I want to do is thank the Orange Church for its loving kindness and its open-mindedness when it comes to discussions of theology. Um, Jim Wallace, who said he was going to be here. I don't see him. He's, um, he's, he tells me that he loves coming to our Sabbath school class because of the openness of the Sabbath school class and the ability to, to discuss biblical and, and theological positions that are not necessarily easy to comprehend or agree with. And it really came clear to me recently, I was at a neighbor church in a Sabbath school class, and I remember the most heartfelt prayer I said. I looked up to heaven. I said, thank you, God, for the Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because it, it, it wasn't really an open-minded approach to uh, theology there. Um, now, we have been doing our sermon series on Romans. And the thing about Romans that is so incredible, it really causes you to think about your theology. It really causes you to think, where is my theology and how does it measure up to Romans? Romans has been the subject of a lot of disagreement between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, certainly, but between Protestant churches. The, the, this message of Romans is clear, but the problem is people can't accept it, so they try to mix in untruth with truth to make Romans work for them. Um, the message of Romans is clear, unmerited grace. You are saved by unmerited grace. That's the message of Romans. Clearly, we've seen that. And that is not my theology, although I embrace it and love it. It is not the theology of the Reformers, although they embraced it and loved it. It's the theology of Paul, as he made it very clear in the book of Romans. Paul is the greatest theologian that ever lived. As you recall, when Christ left, he decimated theology. He, he, left, he left the Pharisees in a mess, and he needed somebody to step up and explain what everything was about and he did it with Paul, and he did it through the book of Romans. It caused, it, the book of Romans, certainly the first four chapters, caused the Reformation. Now, Paul is the author of the book of Romans, and I'm sure all of you remember the sermon I did on the life of Paul, and you hung on every word, and you remembered every single thing I said, right? <laughs> so a couple of people are going, you did a sermon on Romans? I mean, on, um, on Paul? Well, just as a quick recap, Paul was raised as the Pharisee's Pharisee. Paul was the most astute Jew in Jerusalem. By the time Paul was 21 years old, he had the equivalent of two PhDs in the Old Testament. He was brilliant, and he was a Pharisee, and he hated Christians, and he hated the the message of, of Christ. And The message that he came to in Romans was the exact opposite of what he lived, learned, and believed, that we are justified by faith alone. It is completely opposite from Paul's theology as he was raised. Now, this made Paul the perfect person for God to pick and say, I need you to write Romans, because the only thing he had to do was argue with himself. He was most likely 
most likely the author of many of the anti-Jesus arguments that the Jews were making. Because when these Christians were coming up, and Stephen and all these guys were banging, banging the Jews with all this stuff about Christ and how he saved us and how he was the Messiah and how the Bible proved it, I guarantee Paul was one of the guys they ran to and said, how do we dispute this? You're the intellect. You're the guy. Tell us. Give us some stuff. So I'm convinced that Paul was one of the guys that they went to and, and probably authored many of the arguments. Now, we find ourselves now at Romans 4. Romans 4 is a little bit of a turn in the book of Romans, but Pastor has been doing a fantastic job, and Brett squeaked in there for one, but Pastor's been doing a fantastic job at going through the first three chapters of Romans, and he's done a really good job of letting us know, you know, this theology is the theology of peace. It's the theology of taking the burden of the law off your shoulders and relying only on Christ. Now, the message up to now, I could summarize pretty quick. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and we are saved by his grace alone. One through three establishes that clearly. Now, what is justification? Justification is being made just. Justification is salvation. Justification by faith alone is a startling message for the Jewish Pharisees. Startling. Could not accept it for their life. Because what you're telling people is, all of the things you did, all of this wonderful stuff that you did that made you so favorable in God's mind, in your eyes, is meaningless. That is your faith in Christ alone that saves you. Nothing you do. Something that was done for you, not something you did. That's the message. Clear. So um, what's really interesting about Paul is he didn't have the New Testament, nor was he a student of the New Testament, to write the book of Romans. It's clear that only two Gospels may have been written at the time Romans was written. Two certainly were not. Two were kind of contemporaneous, very well could have been afterwards. No. Paul uses the Old Testament, the Old Testament, as his proof text for the grace of God and justification by faith alone. And that's why I always get amazed where people read the Old Testament. They say, well, it's a law and beaten and horrible and, you, you know, you get killed if you don't follow the law. No, no, no. The law was given to us to show us that we needed a Savior. And the Savior is Christ. And it was faith that saved the people of the Old Testament. The message of grace in Romans was based on Old Testament text. Now, why is this sermon title, What About Abraham? Because that's the question that Paul starts chapter 4 with. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his flesh? And if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is his belief in God that made him righteous. Not taking his son up, who wasn't even born yet. Not taking his son up to the mountain. Not doing what God said. It was his faith in God that would made him righteous. And his faith in God alone. Now, reading Romans, and we read Romans already for the, for the first three chapters. Reading Romans, it is an argument. It's an argument. It's an argument as to why Christ is a Savior. It is an argument as to why you are justified by faith alone. Who was Paul arguing with? 
that guy. He was arguing with that guy. That guy is the guy that we deal with today, that Christ dealt with, that Paul dealt with, that the Reformers dealt with. He's in every church today. He's the guy that tells you, you must follow the law. And if you don't follow the law, you displease God. And if you displease God, you're going to burn in hell. That's that guy. He takes away our joy. He takes away our peace. He takes away the message of the free gift of grace from Christ. He is the problem. He is the guy that Paul is arguing with. Now, why did Paul pick Abraham? Because that guy loved Abraham. That guy says, Abraham makes us better. Abraham is the greatest guy who ever lived. Abraham is as clean as a hound dog's tooth. He was a perfectly obedient to Christ, I mean to God, and he did what God did, and that's why we're his descendants, that's why we're better. And Paul looks over his podium and says, really? Well, let's talk about Abraham. Now, why, why were we so worried about Abraham? Go back to remember this scene with Jesus. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? You know, Abraham, he's the man. And Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad because Abraham had faith. Now, no one, no one on the scene knew the scripture like Paul. So whenever Paul was arguing scripture, they knew they were dealing with an an all-star, a heavyweight. This guy was the the scholar of Jerusalem. So when he's throwing their Old Testament at him, I mean the Old Testament at him and scripture at him, they don't know what to do with it. Now, what was Paul talking about when he says he was justified by faith? He didn't make that up. Genesis 15. And he brought him, he being God, he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and the number of stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness by faith is not born in Romans. Righteousness by faith was born in Genesis. Now, um, it is the central theme to Romans 4. Certainly central theme to leading up to Romans 4. Paul brings up Abraham and brings him straight back to earth. The truth about Abraham and the truth of scripture is Abraham came out of the, the first generation removed from the Tower of Babel. It was one of the worst times in, in the history of God's people. Abraham had nothing. He had no leader. He had no, God, no, no law. He had no, nothing to follow. He came out of a pagan society. Now, do we honestly think that one day Abraham woke up and said, I think I'll be a magnificent leader of God's people? I don't think so. In fact, the Bible tells us chapter 11 is Babel. Chapter 12 is he came, he came to Abraham. Abraham believed in him as counting him as righteousness. This is before his son is born. This is before he went to act, sacrifice Isaac. This is before anything. It was his belief, and he was righteous at that time. Did, did he become more righteous as he went along? The Bible doesn't teach us that. He was righteous because he believed. Now, continuing with our chapter here. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David 
also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Paul does a magnificent thing here. Um, In boxing terms, he hit him with a brutal uppercut by taking Abraham off the pedestal, and then he comes over the right cross with regard to David. David's their other other hero. David is another guy that really made them better than anybody else. David is a murderer and a rapist. David lived under the law. David had the law. He didn't follow the law. Yet David got the whole issue of salvation and justification by righteousness. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before he had been circumcised? Uh, it is not after but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Father Abraham had many sons. You know that? That's us. So the righteousness would be counted to him as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is big stuff. And, you know, you could do a whole sermon on this alone. But suffice it to say, he's, he's attacking another pillar of Judaism, the circumcision. The circumcision made us better. The circumcision marked us out. The circumcision made us better than these filthy pagans around us and these Gentiles. And, and Paul's saying, the circumcision is a seal. It's a symbol. It's a, it, it's a symbol. The, the Sabbath is a symbol. Baptism is a symbol. These things all point to God. They don't point to us. Uh, your baptism is not a, a statement of your faith. Your baptism is your acknowledging God and his dominion in your life. The, the, the Lord's Supper is not for you to reflect and say what a great person I am or how good or bad I've been. It is for you to embrace what Jesus did for you. Every time God makes a promise, he gives us a symbol. And they, they, they looked at the circumcision, which was the engagement ring, and saw it as their fiancé. They had it all backwards. And he's, he's bringing that up to them as well. For the purpose of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir to, of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here's where a big problem comes up for people reading Romans. They say, oh, you can't be reading that light, right? Because Paul must, if you read it the way you're reading it, Paul's saying that ignore the law. Ignore the law. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you come to God and your righteousness is by virtue of your following the law, you have no place with me. Get away from me. I never knew you. But what he's saying is, if you come to me in faith, faith is a touchstone. Faith is a measurement. Then you've come to me in righteousness. Because my righteousness then goes to you. Now, 
you know, there's an expression in pitching about pounding the strike zone. Um, in the first 16 verses, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he kind of, it's a kind of a summary statement of the first half of Romans, 9, uh, Romans 4. He says it depends on faith. That is why, you know, all this other stuff I said, that is why it depends on faith that the promise may rest on grace. Faith comes first, grace comes second. And that, that, that was always the message of the, of the reformers is once you have faith, then you're endowed with grace. Grace comes upon you and it's guaranteed to his offspring. So now he, he's, he's used the expression justification by faith six times in, six, in 16 verses. Do you think he's trying to make a point? And it's justification by faith alone. Now, this is the message that brings you out of darkness, of carrying the weight of the law on your back. It brings you into light and freedom. No one can argue that the first three and a half chapters of Romans is clear that you are justified by faith. You don't deserve it. God's mercy is bestowed upon you, not by anything you do. Nothing you do helps you. And the sooner you get that through, the sooner you understand Romans, the sooner you understand the loving, the loving kindness of God. It lifts the burden and weight off your shoulders. It shows that we are Christ, we are free. Free from the burdens of the law. Not free from being Christians and, and following the edicts of the law, but free from being judged by the law. Now, um, we sang earlier today, Jesus paid it all, right? That song, I, 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 as I, again, saw the verses, that's why I asked for it to be the opening song. It's the gospel. It's the message of Romans. It's a me- hey, in fact, let's sing that verse again. Jesus paid it all. Sin had left the He washed. Karen, I told you they'd sing. <laughs> she said, don't do it. They might not sing. You'll be up there like a fool. Um, now, here's where we have to address a big issue. Big issue right now has to be addressed. Paul, if people believe that, they will live any way they want. If you tell people that they're not, have to, they're not required to follow the law, but only come to Jesus in faith, you are going to allow them to live any way they want. That is the biggest bunch of nonsense that could ever be preached. And I'll tell you one thing I detest to hear, and I've heard it many times, cheap grace. That's cheap grace. Oh, so you're going to pay for the grace? Your good works are going to pay for the grace and make it not cheap anymore? No. Let's talk right now about who the person under grace is. The person under grace comes to the foot of the cross, looks up and sees the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, God Almighty himself, beaten, broken, suffering. And that person under grace looks up with tears streaking down their face and says, you did that for me. You did that for me. There is nothing. They, they stand there empty-handed. There is nothing I can do to deserve what you just did for me. That's the person under grace, and that's the person Paul's talking about. 
I hope I never hear that term again because it is absurd. And, and do you think, okay, so that person, they're broken, and, and they become an advocate and a lover of Christ, and they do their best. Do you think that person gets, dusts himself off and says, okay, cool, let's go party? No, no, that person doesn't. That person under grace. Or conversely, conversely, do you think Jesus looks down from the cross as he's done? He's done it all. He's done it all. And he looks down and says, okay, that's cool that you like that I did this. Now go pick up that big bag of rocks called the law. Put it on your shoulders and see how well you carry it. That's the message of Romans. Now, it's, it's important that we realize and never forget you are saved by what Jesus did and nothing you did. Something was done for you, not something was done by you. If there's anything that you remember from this sermon, please remember that. I, I'm sure many of you are asleep already. So, but, um, Now, um, you know what your good works are? Your good works are very poorly drafted thank you notes on really crummy paper. And Jesus puts them on his bulletin board in heaven and says, that's one of my sheep that loves me like we do with our kids. But that's what your good works are. You, to think that our good works do anything to make God think any better of us is absurd, and it's, a, it's an affront to the Roman story. Um, now, remember, what is the faith? See, here's what a lot of people do, too. They say, okay, I get it. It's faith. I better start working on my faith. I got to get to work. got to go work on my faith. You don't work on your faith. You, you appreciate your Lord and Savior, your King of Kings, and what he did for you. That's faith. Faith, then grace. Now, these first four chapters of Romans is why we have a Protestant denomination. It is why we have the Reformation. It is not, you know, there's something we've got to get clear pretty quick. But um, Romans is vitally, vitally important to the distinction between Protestant Christianity and Catholic Christianity. It is the dividing line. It is, it is a theological dividing line. Okay, the Protestant Reformation happened 1519. Why did I pick that date? It was a trial of Martin Luther. Now, it's kind of hard to get your finger on when did the Reformation start. I use that date because at 1519 in the trial of Martin Luther is clearly where it happened. And Martin Luther, by an act of God, was spirited away from his trial because where he was supposed to go was to a pile of logs and tied to a stake and burned. But he got out of there. Now, the Reformation was about justification by faith and Paul's teaching of it in Romans. The Catholic Church had a completely different teaching of what Romans says. And the Catholic Church did not like um, Luther's interpretation of it. Interesting twist. Luther was asked when he was a monk. Now, who is Luther? Luther was a Catholic monk and a theologian, well-studied, very intelligent man. And he carried that burden of the law worse than anybody in the history of Christendom. He spent his life trying to live under the law. In fact, when he first started, they asked him if he loved God. He goes, love God? I hate God. I hate hate the burden I, as he puts upon us. I hate the fact that I can't measure up. I try and I try and I try. I can't measure up. It'll never work. He would go to confession for hours and hours every day and then feel good for 10 minutes as he went up the stairs and then remember sin that he forgot to tell and go run back down. Luther was under a 
burden of the law. Nobody got it better than him. Well, Luther was asked to do a study on Romans. This is where it all started. Luther was asked by his, uh, he was in an Augustinian um, monastery. Now, the monastery guy said, hey, we want you to do, lead out a study on Romans. And what happened was um, he was up in a tower in a study, the people who study the life of um, Luther call it the tower experience. And he was up in the tower, and he's looking at Romans, and he looks at the Catholic theologians on Romans, and he's saying, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. But there was one guy that had it right, Augustine. Augustine was a, a theologian of, from the third century, and he read Augustine, and then he went back to Romans, and he said, they've been lying to me. This is about justification by faith. Now, Luther's tower experience was his understanding of Roman. The first thing he had a problem with was righteousness of God and how it was explained to him. Now, these are Luther's words himself. The phrase was customarily explained to mean that the righteousness of God is a virtue by which he himself is righteous and condemns sinners. In this way, all the teachers of this church, except Augustine, had interpreted the passage. So he's struggling with it. He's going, wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. How, uh, he's reading Romans like it should be read, and, but he's trying to read what he's being taught by the Catholic theologians. The just shall live by faith. This is Luther again. From this passage, I concluded that life, salvation, life must be derived from faith. Then the entire Holy Scripture became clear to me, and heaven itself was opened to me. Now we see the brilliant light very clearly, and we are privileged to enjoy it abundantly. That place in Paul, Romans, was for me truly the gate to paradise. This is when the Reformation started. This is when Luther said, wait a minute. We are saved by faith alone. There's nothing we can do. We could work our brains out. There's nothing we could do. It's faith alone that gets us there. So Luther started the Reformation. They came up with some, some pillars of their theology. Confidence in salvation through, mercy, through God's mercy. You're confident in justification by faith. That after your justification, grace is pounded on you, and you are kept in God's graces unless you reject it. That's the teaching. It's impossible to follow the Ten Commandments they taught. The Ten Commandments show us that we need Christ. That if you think you can follow the Ten Commandments, you're, you're, you know, good luck with that. And Jesus said that. We are not judged by the Ten Commandments. That's kind of their theology. Now, their theology was based on five pillars, and I love these. And everything's got to be in Latin because all the educated guys spoke in Latin. The five pillars of Protestantism. Before we get to that, time check, I'm behind, so I'm not going to go too far into this. Um, this, when Luther, let's, let's dispel another fable. You know, when I was a kid, people about my age saw this too. We always had this story about George Washington, that uh, he had a little hatchet when he was a kid, and he cut down his dad's cherry tree. And his dad came to him and said, who did this? And he said, I cannot tell a lie, it was I. It's a fable. It's a fable we made up. I guess it's not in history books anymore. Well, the... the, the Luther nailing the thesis on the door, causing the Reformation, is a Christian fable. He did nail the thesis on the door, yes. Indulgences were the issue, yes. Yes, yes. 
it did not cause the Reformation. Luther wrote the thesis in Latin, didn't want everybody to see it, and wanted just to have an internal discussion. Yes, it questioned the authority of the Pope. Yes, it questioned the indulgences. The Catholics admitted the indulgences were wrong. The indulgences were not the thing that split the church. The thing that split the church was Luther's teaching on justification by faith alone. In fact, um, they came up with their five pillars. Sola fide, by faith alone. Justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. That's what Martin Luther said. And it's true. If we don't have this right, we don't have anything right. Sola gratia, by grace alone. We are saved by faith, which gives us grace. Solo Cristo, all our Spanish speakers know that one. By Christ alone. Sola Scriptura. I wish, I wish Lou was here today because that one really gets him mad. Um, sola Scriptura. By Scripture alone. Scripture is the only authority that guides us. No red books, no blue books, no green books. Scripture is the only authority that we recognize. Solo Dio Gloria. Glory to God alone. It was on these five pillars that the Protestant church was built. Our, guess, guess, guess what happened? So he brings this message. He brings this message of peace and love and, and, and that you, you can only serve God the best you can that you'll never measure up. Guess who showed up? <laughs> he's back. He's back. This time he's wearing a pope's robe or a, and a cardinal's robe. This time, they're not happy. They're, they're not happy at all. Um, now, the Reformation got going really well, and it was taken off. Luther started the Reformation, I say 1519. By 1546, he died. And, you know, the Catholics are kind of watching this thing. They're, they're burning people wherever they could catch them and time to a stake for teaching this heresy. Um, but they're kind of seeing where it's going. Well, it's not slowing down. It's gaining speed. There's a guy named John Calvin now who's on the scene. And so they said, look, we've got to deal with this. Council of Trent. The Council of Trent, um, sorry that this is a great history lesson, but it's great stuff. Um, the Council of Trent was formed by the Catholic Church. The Council of Trent collected all the greatest Catholic theologians they could get their hands on. And they said, you guys better sit down and put, get a lid on this Protestant thing quick. And you guys, I want you to sit down and go through all the Protestant theology and tear it apart and set it right. So what was the second order of business? First order of business was organization, obviously. Who's in charge? How are we going to do this? The second order of business is the doctrine of justification that Luther's preaching, that you are justified by faith alone. That's what they wanted to deal with. Now, I, I want to do something interesting to see what the Catholic Church's current view on it is. So I went to the New Advent, it's kind of ironic, huh? New Advent Catholic Encyclopedia of 2014. The dogma of justification, they're talking about the Council of Trent, the dogma of justification brought up for debate one of the fundamental questions that, which had to be discussed with reference to the heretics of the 16th century. Heretics, our guys. <laughs> you know, it's always funny. It's always funny when you're in, when you look at history, 
we call them our, the, the, the reformers and, and the heroes of the faith. They still get called heretics by the Catholic today. Okay, so the Council of Trent came together and they put together a decree on justification. This is important. I'm going to, we'll go through this quickly, but this is um, very important stuff. So you got to see how they started. It, it, you get the sense of who these guys think they are from the beginning. This is the opening paragraph of their decree on justification. Whereas there is at this time, not without the shipwreck of many souls, a grievous detriment to the unity of the church, a certain erroneous doctrine disseminated touching justification. The sacred, holy, ecumenical, and general synoid of Trent. Synoid is a fancy name for uh, Catholic guys with big hats and fancy titles that get together and talk smack on Protestants. Um, the, okay, I, I skip. I, I skip the next part because it goes on saying, and this judge and this bishop and that cardinal and all these guys are great in here. The true and sound doctrine, now they're telling you, this is the true doctrine. The true and sound doctrine touching said justification, which the Catholic Church, the Holy Ghost reminding her thereof, has always retained. What they're saying is, we are the authority, the Holy Ghost keeps us on track. We are the authority. We've always retained it. Most strictly forbidding that any, henceforth, from this day forward, presume to believe, preach, teach, or otherwise than as, otherwise than as, by, than as by this present decree is defined and declared. They just passed a death sentence on anybody who teaches differently. It's a death sentence. This isn't a theological difference. This is, you're going to get tied to a stake and burn if you do this. Now, they go through the beginning of the, um, the, beginning of the decree on justification starts with kind of a narrative trying to explain their thinking. Wherefore, no one ought to flatter himself up with faith alone, fancying, or thinking foolishly, that by faith alone, one is made an heir and will obtain the inheritance, even though he suffer not with Christ. That's so he may also be glorified with him. See, they said, you have to suffer. You have to follow the law. You have to burn in purgatory. If you say that somebody say by faith alone, you're dead to us. Then um, they came up with canons, and there were 33 canons in the end. Canons are edicts. After all their narrative, they say, these are the edicts. This is what we believe, and this is why you have to follow it. If anyone, Canon 12, if anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in divine mercy, which remits sin for Christ's sake, or this confidence alone is whereby they are justified, let him be anathema. Anathema means cursed. You are cursed if you believe you are justified by faith alone. You know what the question is we have to answer? Do we stand with Paul or do we stand with the Vatican on this issue? Canon 27. Can I do my one minute? If anyone says there is no mortal sin except that of infelity. Now, now you've got to understand Catholicism. Catholicism has what's called mortal sin and venial sins. Mortal sins are the ones that send you to hell. They're, they're, they're like misdemeanors and felonies. A mortal sin is a sin felony. So, um, if anyone, they're saying, if anyone says there's no sin but infidelity, which means rejection of God, 
If anyone says that there's no sin but rejection of God, or that grace once received is not lost by any other sin, however grievous or enormous, except that of rejecting God, let him be accursed. They're saying, in contradiction to the Protestant teaching, if you believe that once you're in grace, your grace cannot be lost unless you reject God, you are cursed. Question again, do we stand with Paul or do we stand with the Vatican on this issue? Canon 20, if anyone says that a man who is justified and how so perfect soever is not bound to observe the commandments of God and that the church and the end of the church, but only to believe, and I love the sarcasm, as if indeed the gospel were a bare and absolute promise of eternal life without the condition of observing the commandments, let them be accursed. Isn't that what the gospel is? Isn't that what Romans has told us? It is a bare promise that your faith in God saves you. Do we stand with Paul or do we stand with the Vatican on this issue? 18. If anyone says that the commandments of God are, even for one who is justified and constituted in grace, impossible to keep. Jesus taught that. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, if you've lusted after a woman in your mind, you've committed adultery. How many fellows here have not committed adultery? I don't see any hands going up. Good. Um, the, the Ten Commandments are impossible to keep. Do we stand with Paul or do we stand with the Vatican on this issue? Mercy. <laughs> and here, here's one that we, we really have to wrestle with. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved, maintained, and also increased before God through good works, following the Ten Commandments, but that said works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be cursed. If anyone says that you have to maintain your faith, you have to maintain, show God that you're maintaining your faith by following the Ten Commandments, or that you're judged by the Ten Commandments, you're accursed. Do we stand with Paul, or do we stand with the Vatican on this issue? Because all of the Roman, all of the theology of, of Romans came, came to the Reformers. That was their theology. Now, the great thing I love, we have to see in a minute here, is this theology is the core of Protestantism. And the problem with Protestantism over the last 500 years is we, you could tell by these how far we've drifted back to Catholicism. We've drifted back. We start telling people, you better follow the law. You're measured by following the law. We can tell if you're a good Christian by how you follow the law. That's the, the reformers. And you know what this was? This wasn't a dispute of theology. This was life and death. These guys went to the, they, they took so many of the reformers and put them at the stake and burnt them. That's what would happen to you. Luther spent his life teaching, preaching, writing, and running because they were always after, they wanted to burn him so bad they could taste it. Um, all Protestant denominations came from this, but we've drifted back. You know, on a personal note, this, is, this theology has, has enriched my Christian life. Because I don't have to carry that anymore. I, I, all the good works I do are those stupid little notes I send to Jesus saying thank you that he sees on this crummy little paper misspelled. 
That's all it is. Because he's done it all. That's why that song is so great. Now, the reformers came up with a, with a motto. They, they wanted to come up with a motto. And the motto was, they could end up with three words because they couldn't go through all their five pillars and everything else. They wanted a quick motto that would catch. Post tenebras lux. That you, I want to go to Geneva so bad and see the monument of the reformers. You know what that means? After darkness, light. The darkness of Rome, the darkness of the lie about the gospel, the darkness of what we're supposed to be, the darkness of you proving yourself worthy, the darkness of carrying the load of the law, after darkness, light. Please, church, come to the light. It is is a plea from the book of Romans. Now, we're going to end this sermon now. I'm sure many are happy. Um, But don't remain in darkness. The darkness is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell that you have to somehow prove yourself worthy of the all-atoning sacrifice given from God. Let us honor Paul. Let us honor God and the reformers for what they did, for the price they paid for this message. Now, we're going to end up this sermon with a, with a song called A Mighty Fortress. A Mighty Fortress was written by Luther himself. And A Mighty Fortress is call, was called the Battle Hymn of the Reformation. You know, and I, I love the last verse of it. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, remember, it becomes a little real when they were trying to kill him. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Church family, if there's one thing I want to leave you with is get the burden of following the law off your back. You follow the law because you love your Lord. Do not beat yourself up. Do not beat yourself down. Come to the light after darkness, light.